to the Mission North Shore podcast. John chapter 6. We're going to go back now to our series on the life and times of Jesus. Does anybody remember that we were doing that at one point? Between the Israel trip and Christmas and and the holidays, the whole deal, we kind of got off track there. Not off track, we shouldn't say that. We got sidelined a little bit on our, our series, but we're going now back to our series on the life and times of Jesus. And we come to a sermon that Jesus gives in the synagogue of Capernaum where he says, I am the bread of life. And this is the first of seven I am's that John's gospel gives us. Now, I am is a designation for God. It was how God, when asked what was his name, how he defined himself. How he said his name. It was taken from Exodus chapter 3 when God sent Moses to the Pharaoh and Moses is stumbling through some excuses and saying, I don't speak good. I don't da 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 da. And he's got all these excuses and finally goes, All right, I'll go to Pharaoh, but who should I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am. And so Jesus uses this designation to point to his deity. And people understood that he was doing that because we read in John chapter 8 that Jesus said to the people, he said, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the very next thing that it says is they picked up stones to throw at him. They knew exactly what he was claiming when he used this designation of himself. And John's gospel is very big on pointing to the fact that Jesus is just that, God in the flesh. It opens up that way. It goes, in the beginning was the Word, another designation for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then further down in verse 14, it says, the Word um, became flesh. That God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we saw his glory. And that's the point that Jesus, the the reason for and the point that Jesus is giving this particular sermon to those that are following him so that they would understand who he truly is and that they would believe in him and that they would come to him for salvation and not just come to him for real superficial kind of things. And that was going to be their problem. They were coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. And so he says here in this section, as we're going to go through it, he says, for the bread of God which comes down from heaven. I'm going to just rattle through some of these and then we'll get into to, to what you have there in John chapter 6. He says, the bread of God which has come down out of heaven gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. For I, and notice what he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And then he goes on later in the passage to say, truly I say, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And he wants the people that he's going to engage now in this sermon on the bread of life, he wants them to stop thinking only on a worldly level, only on a horizontal level. 
and stop just coming to Him for what they might get just because they want things. Um, they're, they're coming kind of living for this life only. And Jesus is trying to open their eyes to what they really, really need. To come to Him on a vertical level as their Savior, to come to Him for a relationship with God, for forgiveness of their sins, and eternal life that can only come through Him. That's what He wants them to see. And that's the point. Jesus is calling these guys out. As we open up this passage, we're going to see that He's calling these guys out for really being superficial and, and for kind of being farewell, fair weather followers of Him, really. It's a really long section here. We're not going to do every single verse in it. It's like about 50 verses, but, and some of it's kind of repetitive. So what we're going to do is we're going to read portions and we're going to pull out kind of the highlights and get to the main purpose and points here. This text is also oftentimes way overcomplicated. It, people have taken this text and, and taken it places it was never meant to go. People have made this text say things that it was never meant to do. People have built entire doctrines around this text that were never supposed to be there. But in its original context, and for its original purpose, this text is, is really quite simple. And, and the main point that Jesus is getting to in these verses, and the questions that we want to ask ourselves for application, are these things. Are we following Jesus for the right reasons? Why are we here? Jesus calls these guys out and questions their motives for following him. Is Jesus there and our pursuit? Is Jesus himself enough? Let's start reading here in verse 22, John 6, 22. It says, the next day, that's kind of important, the next day, the crowd that stood on uh, the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other small boats there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone, um, had gone away alone. There came other boats from Tiberias near to this place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. He's, he's talking about the feeding of the 5,000 there. We're going to get to that. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now let's, let's figure out what they're doing here. In verse 22, it says, the next day. And what we have here is three major things that happened in about a 24-hour period. The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and then this bread of life sermon. And we need a little bit of a review because we've been away from our series for a little while. When we left off, we left off with Jesus walking on water. The storm came, the disciples were out into the boat, and Jesus came walking on the water. Right before that, we had the feeding of the 5,000. Very important that we know that because the feeding of the 5,000 is the backstory and gives the context 
for understanding why Jesus is giving this bread of life sermon. If we don't know that he's dealing with people that were at the feeding of the 5,000, we're not going to completely understand what he's doing in this sermon because Jesus is. He's literally in this sermon talking to people that were at the feeding of the 5,000. These are people that had eaten the fish and the loaves as he broke those and gave thanks. So let's look and see what, what happened here. We've got a map. Where is it? The day before this sermon that we're going to get into, Jesus went by boat from somewhere in the area around Capernaum. He goes over to the area of Bethsaida, and it says that he goes there on a grassy hill, and that's where he had originally intended, as he got in a boat somewhere around Capernaum, headed toward Bethsaida. He was taking his disciples. They were going to go away, and the original intent was rest. But it didn't work out that way. What we read is that the people came running from around Capernaum on top of the Sea of Galilee by foot. Now, Jesus went by boat, but these people go by foot. They're they're hardcore. They're working hard to get to Jesus. Keep that in mind. They're working hard to get to Jesus. They get there, and Jesus sees them then and has compassion on them because they are, uh, he says that they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he teaches them many things up in that area around Bethsaida, and it begins to get late. These guys are hungry. The disciples come to Jesus and say, send these guys away because it's late. They need to go somewhere so they can get some food. And Jesus says, you feed them. Of course, they can't, but the best they muster up is a few fish and and some bread. And Jesus does then the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 at that time. Now, The main point of that miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, was less about feeding people. It wasn't really mostly about filling bellies. It was mostly to be a lesson for the disciples. They were to learn of their insufficiency on their own and the complete sufficiency of Christ to work through them. The problem is this. They didn't learn the lesson. We're told in Mark chapter 6 that it says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And so just like with us, when we don't learn the lesson that the Lord is teaching, what happens? We're generally destined for another lesson, aren't we? And oftentimes it has to be a real attention getter, doesn't it? Have you guys ever done that? Has anybody ever not got the lesson that the Lord was teaching you? And then you get a real attention getter of a lesson right after that. And then all of a sudden, okay, I got it now. That's what's going on here. So after the feeding of the 5,000, because the disciples didn't gain any insight from that, Jesus sends them in a boat out into the Sea of Galilee with the intent to go to the other side. But of course, there's a massive storm. Jesus himself goes up on the mountain to pray. And the disciples are now out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. This massive storm comes and they're they're rowing against this storm for at least nine hours. Long time to be rowing in the middle of a storm. And when they come to the end of themselves, Jesus comes to them walking on the water. That's really cool. That's why when the other people on the lake, they get up in the morning and they go, where is Jesus? There's no boats here for him to leave in. He just walked there. And so Jesus goes walking on the water. And then one of my favorite passages is that Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water too. I love that about Peter. 
I want to be like Peter. Peter goes, Lord, if that's you, if that's what you do, I want to do what you do. And he literally gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. And of course, yeah, I know Peter takes his eyes off of the Lord and he begins to sink into the water and he, he gets his eyes on the circumstances and on the situation and, and he begins to sink. But think about this, man. Jesus is right there. He lifts him up. Peter goes, help me, Lord. And, and the Lord grabs him, helps him back up. And, and I, I, man, I tell you, I would rather get out of the boat a thousand times and have to be rescued by the Lord than never to get out of the boat at all. And you know, a lot of Christians spend their entire life just sitting in the boat, don't they? And my greatest fear is not sinking or failing. Listen, guys, I fail every single day. That's not my greatest fear. I'm well over that. My greatest fear is being one of the 11 left in that boat and always having known and always thinking, I could have done that. I, I could have got out there with Jesus. Now, when they get back in the boat, Peter and Jesus, the winds die and eventually they end up in Capernaum. Meanwhile, there's still these people way up by Bethsaida that had been fed um, the day before. Now they're waking up in the morning and they're looking for Jesus. Where is Jesus? They go down to the water. They recognize the boat's gone. We saw the disciples leave in it. Jesus didn't go with them. He went up on the, the mountain to pray and they don't know where he is. And so they began to look for Jesus. At that time, some other boats come from Tiberias. Apparently they had heard Jesus was up near Bethsaida. So they arrive in that region because they had heard that Jesus was there. And when they couldn't find Jesus, they didn't know where he went the people that were up in Bethsaida get in these boats and they head across to Capernaum. Now, that was a good and logical move to head toward Capernaum because that was Jesus' hometown for the time of his ministry. Of course, he was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. But for the three years of his ministry, he resided primarily and at least had his kind of home base there in Capernaum. And the people find Jesus there in Capernaum, and we're told in verse 59, if you look at verse 59, that he was there in the synagogue. Now look at verse 25, John 6, 25. And it says, when they found him on the other side, when they had left Bethsaida, gone to Capernaum by boat, when they found him there, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? But notice what Jesus does. He doesn't answer their question but he immediately calls into question their motives for following him. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Jesus knows what's going on in their heart. Over in verse 64, it says, But... There were some who did not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who did not believe. And so Jesus sees their hearts, and he calls them out on their motives. He's saying, you guys didn't even just come to see me because I'm doing signs. You guys just came because I fed you. It's gotten that, that superficial. In, in the beginning of chapter 6, we read that originally the people were coming in 6... In chapter 6, verse 2, we read that the people were originally coming because of the signs and wonders. But now, 
By the time we get to verse 26, Jesus points out that after the feeding of the 5,000, the reason for following him now is far more superficial. It's just because they were getting fed. And that's the purpose for this whole bread of life sermon. Because their motives are wrong and their view of Jesus is wrong. They need to move from the superficial to the meaningful. He wants them to move from the physical to the spiritual. He wants them to move from the temporal to the eternal. And that's why he says in verse 27, Do not work for food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, when he says do not work, he's not saying do not work in the sense of like don't have a job. We have to provide for our families. Scripture scripture is very clear that that is something that we are to do. 1 Timothy 5.8, that if if a man is unwilling to work and and provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. And Ephesians chapter 4.28 tells us that we are to work hard so that not only do we have enough for ourselves, but we have enough to help other people when they're in need. So he's not telling us not to work as in don't have a job, but... What he's doing in the immediate context is he's looking at these guys and he goes, you guys are working hard to follow me. You ran from Capernaum all the way to Bethsaida. When you couldn't find me there, you got in boats and you ran all the way back to Capernaum. You're working hard to find me, but you're working hard for superficial reasons. And he wants them to come to him for spiritual reasons, for enduring and for eternal life reasons. He wants them to come for a relationship with Him, not just because they're being fed. He wants them to come for the right reasons, not just because He fed them. Now, two quick applications that we can make right here. One is that there's a lot of times where people will come to church or come to be around Jesus because they want to get stuff from Him. A lot of times people will come to Jesus if they're in a financial crunch and and they want Him to bless them monetarily or they want Him to bless their business or they want Him to straighten out their kids and their kids are are raising Cain or they've gotten themselves in some sort of a jam and they want Him to help them out. A lot of times we treat Jesus like He's four-wheel drive. We don't come to Him, we don't engage with Him until we get stuck and then we're like, Jesus, help us. A lot of times people approach Jesus that way. I did the prison ministry at OCCC for years, and I was in a a particular module, module 13. And that module was pre-sentence and pre-trial. So it's guys just having been yanked off the street. Module 13 was the gnarliest of all of the modules. They put um, that guy, Marks, that shot the the two cops there, the Baskin Robbins in there while I was in there. I mean, it was the, the worst guys brought in, but they were just yanked off the street. They were always facing big amounts of time And so in their fear, in their moment, they would always come to Bible study. I would just go into general population, sit at a table, anybody could come. And so when they got yanked off the street or whatever, they were going up before the judge in the next week or something. They always wanted to come and have prayer. But if the trial didn't go the way they wanted or the sentencing didn't go the way they wanted, oftentimes I wouldn't see them the next week or the next week or the next week till they got transferred to where they were going. They were only coming to Jesus because they wanted Him to do something for Him. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
All of those things are great things to bring and lay before Jesus. You got monetary problems, you got kid problems, you need a job, you need any of it. You get locked up in prison, hopefully none of you will, but if you get, hey, it's all good stuff that you need to come and lay before the foot of the Lord. But way too often, if we get what we want, we're gone because we got what we wanted and we were only there on a superficial level. Or way too often, if we don't get what we want, we're gone because we didn't get what we want and we view Jesus as some sort of a kind of heavenly vending machine. These guys are not coming to Jesus for their greatest need. They're coming to Jesus just because he's giving them something. And Jesus wants them to come to him for the right reasons. People will come to Jesus for reasons far inferior to what he's truly worth. Now think about that for just a second. People will come to Jesus for reasons far inferior to what he's truly worth. What Jesus is going to point out in this sermon is that he himself is what they need. He's the bread of life. He should be their pursuit. He should be what they're after. Do not work for food which perishes, but work for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for the Father has set his seal on him. He says, truly I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. I should be your pursuit. I should be the one that you're coming to meet with. Not just to get stuff from me. How, how horrible would that be as a parent if the only time you ever saw your kid was when they wanted to get stuff from you? Now, as good parents, we want to give good gifts to our kids. That's something that we want to do. But we also want them to come and love us because of who we are. Because we love them first. God's the same way. Well, what happens if we just show up when we want stuff? There's another point along these lines that we, the church, need to remember. And that Jesus is the goal of all of our activity. And what I mean by that is this. Everything that we do should be done to that end. That Jesus is the goal. He's the ultimate He's, he's the point for our gathering and, and everything that we do and all of our activity. He should be the end game of our activity. And here's why. Because we are not the answer. He is the answer. Sometimes this becomes a little bit lost, and I've been guilty of this too. Sometimes this becomes a little bit lost in humanitarian things that we might do or areas of benevolence type work that we might do when we're actually physically caring for people and we're there for them to alleviate their suffering. Oftentimes this can get a little bit blurred or watered down. I'll give you some examples. Areas like missions. We go and we do missions. Oftentimes, we go to a third world place and we try to alleviate suffering for people. My wife went on, on a medical mission to Haiti when they had a, a big cholera outbreak and they were able to save a lot of kids. She was going there because there was a medical need there. When we go to Boracay, we went there and we, we, 
were working on and building a school there and we went and helped in these feeding programs and we did wound care for people in distant villages because they couldn't get you know, the wound care that they needed and they were all getting infected and all of this stuff. When we do substance abuse care, when we do food distribution, things like Butch does down on Fridays at the gym, whenever we do any form of benevolence for the needy, anything that we're doing to alleviate suffering, listen, all of it is super important. Jesus helped many suffering people, but it is not the end goal. We should care because Jesus cared. We should help where we can help. But the greatest need of people is Jesus. And in our feeding of people, in our building of schools, in our wound care, and in everything that we do, this is what we're doing. We're building a bridge over which we can deliver the gospel. Because regardless of what's wrong with that person, one day they will perish. And so in our caring, we are building a bridge over which we can deliver the gospel. It's a means to an end, and the end should always be Jesus. And oftentimes there's an old saying that says that that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so we go and we care so that we can deliver what we know, which is that Jesus loves them. And while we do care about the temporal needs of people, we care more about the eternal needs of people. See, Jesus fed the 5,000, but not just to fill bellies. In a few hours, those guys were going to be hungry again. They woke up in the morning, guarantee they were hungry again. The greater purpose was that they would come to know that He Himself is the bread of life and can save them. So a couple of application points there. Then in verse 28, it says that the people that had come to Him say... What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said this, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So in verse 27, Jesus is talking about eternal life. In verse 28, the people show up and they go, What kind of stuff do we need to do? What what kind of works will save us? And Jesus answers and says this, It's faith in Him and faith in Him alone. Very important doctrinal distinction that we're making here between what religion is and what Jesus has called us to. Christianity is not works-based in regard to salvation. Judaism, still to this day, very much works-based. Mormonism, very much works-based. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, all very much works-based religions. That's what religion is. It's people trying to perform good enough to find favor with God. That's what religion is. People trying to find approval with God by the works that they have done. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. The gospel says you'll never be good enough. You'll never perform well enough. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says that we are all unclean and our most righteous acts are but filthy rags. But the gospel is that while we were at our worst, Jesus was at his best. 
and that he came and paid that price for our sins so that we're not trying to perform well enough to come to the Lord. That's religion. We're just come humbly by faith. We repent. We ask God to forgive us. And he takes us into relationship with him, not based on what we have done, but solely and completely based on what Jesus did. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that meant that it was over. There was no further work that could be done. And it made everything at that moment about simply coming to him and accepting what he did on the cross. In Ephesians 2.8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. In Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In Titus chapter 3, It says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by, wa- by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. These guys come to Jesus and they go, what are the works that we need to do to get in? What, what sacrifice do we offer? What service do we do? What rule do we keep? What hoop do we jump through? And Jesus says, none of it. He says, it's by faith. It's a heart issue, first and foremost. The most scathing condemnation that Jesus had were for those that were doing religion apart from heart. It's always about the heart with the Lord. That's why it says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your what? In your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oftentimes, we would prefer that there would be some sort of a work that we could do, huh? or some sort of a rule that we could keep, or some sort of a hoop that we could jump through to, to get in, and that God wouldn't mess with our heart. Far, far more difficult. It's, it's way easier to do some form of a work. How many chairs do I need to set up to get into heaven? How, what, what, are, what do I need to do? That would be so much easier than God messing with our heart all the time, calling out our motives all the time. Here, Jesus is exposing the hardness of their hearts and the wrongness of their motives. Then, in verse 30, they ask for something kind of curious. They ask for a sign. They say to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then notice what they say. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They ask Jesus for a sign. Now, these are people that were just a day earlier where? At the feeding of the 5,000. 
These are people who had just been fed with all of the loaves that Jesus had multiplied, and now they're coming to him asking for a sign. But, but I think there's something key here. In verse 31, they bring up manna. Manna was a major miracle that happened when Moses was in charge, when the children of Israel were in the Sinai Desert for 40 years. And the way that they survived was manna from heaven every single day. They were given this bread, this weird white substance that they called manna. It was bread from heaven, and that's how they survived for 40 years. And I believe what's happening in this, this text, in this verse right here, and in this question that they're asking, especially as we look at the context of verse 32, is not so much that they're asking for any old sign. They're not just saying, Jesus, just do some sort of a trick for us. But I believe what they're doing is saying, do a greater sign than Moses and manna. Do a greater sign than what Moses was able to do with the manna. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. They also understood the messianic connection to bread. Bread had become, at least some degree, a symbol of the Messiah. Here's a few examples to explain how that kind of worked out and where they drew that from. They knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. The name of Bethlehem means house of bread. So they made a messianic connection there. In the temple, you had the table of showbread that would be changed every single Sabbath. And like the rest of the items in that temple, like the rest of the furniture that was in there, it all represented and pointed to the Messiah. For example, the candlestick, the menorah that was in there, always pointed forward to the light of the world. Well, in the same way, the table of showbread always pointed to the life of the world. Because bread is what? It's provision. It's provision from God, and it is the bread of life. And this is the key one for us. In a certain aspect, they understood that the Messiah would be like Moses. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that it says, and they understood this to be a messianic um, prophecy, they said that there will come another prophet like unto Moses. And they understood that to be a messianic prophecy. What did Moses do? In their eyes, Moses provided manna for 40 years in the wilderness. This was bread that kept them alive. It is what? Bread of life. And so in the context of verse 32, I believe what they're asking Jesus is this. This is what Moses did for our fathers in the desert. If you're greater than Moses, what are you going to do for us? Because look at verse 32. Jesus straightens them out right away. He says, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. He goes on to say, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am, and this is the key part, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And then in verse 38, it says, for I have come down out of heaven, not to do my own will, 
but to do the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 40 it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up. And then in verse 47, look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And then what does it say? I am the bread of life. Your fathers, notice what he says, ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that the one who eats of it may not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And so the whole point that that Jesus is working through with these guys is this. And this is where we're going to wrap it up. They've come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. They're they're clamoring for things that will perish when all the while, Jesus himself is what they need. And we need to ask ourselves that same question. Why are we here? Why, Why do we even come over here? Why why do we come and and spend time to be around Jesus in this capacity? Is it because I want him to do things for me? Just to do things for me. Lord, Lord, I need you to, I'm in this bind. I need you to get me out of this. Because there's a a very, very evil doctrine in church world today that perpetuates that kind of thinking, which is the prosperity doctrine. There's a a prosperity doctrine out there today that says that, you know, when you come to God, you're coming to get something. And if you'll give, he'll give you more. You know, if you give him a hundred bucks, you're going to get a thousand back. And, And a horrible doctrine out there that is has done a whole lot of damage to people. And they kind of perpetuate this idea of Jesus as this heavenly vending machine or the celestial Santa Claus that you give him your big list and and you're coming to him so that he might make you prosperous. Or do we come to Jesus because what he did on the cross was enough? Because he himself is enough. Do we come like Joe? He says, though you slay me, I will trust in you. Whatever this world throws at me, I'm still going to trust in you. Feast or famine, I'm with you, Jesus. Because you yourself are enough. And what you did on the cross was sufficient. It is finished. And I can come to you for that and that alone. And church, that is why When we do worship nights, they are so vitally important to us. Because we're coming here to worship God solely because of who He is and what He did on the cross. We have no other agenda than to worship Him solely because of who He is and what He did on the cross. He is worthy of our praise. whether he gives me another single thing, he is worthy of every ounce of my praise. And so as we go into a time of worship now, let's keep that in mind. And let's worship him for what he's worth. And if we've treated him as somebody who's just supposed to give us stuff, 
Let's repent of that and turn our hearts to him and say, Lord, you yourself are enough. Father, we do. We come before you and and I repent of any time, Lord, that I have made it about what you might give me as opposed to who you are. Lord, we come and we recognize that what you did on the cross was a complete and absolute act of love. You didn't have to, you chose to. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And so we recognize, Lord, that you yourself should be our pursuit. You yourself should be our all in all. And so, Lord, we pray that as we go into a time of worship now, that you would place that heavy on our heart. That regardless of what's going on in our world, and regardless of how selfish our prayer lives may become at times, that you yourself are sufficient. You yourself are enough. Lord, we come to you because of your goodness, and we lift your name on high. We pray that right now you'd be enthroned upon the praises of your people as we worship you. Lord, we as a church together come together and and, and proclaim that you are worthy. And we're going to do that, Lord, in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening and God bless.